Thank you, Trevor. What an excellent uh, overview of Genesis chapter 1. Uh, Trevor is starting to lead us in uh, Route 66, 66 books of the Bible, and we read part of them, and he is leading us through that during the first hour. Thank you. Thank you, ladies, uh, for helping me draw out my heart in worship. We know the living God. We know him, and he is pleased when we offer him songs of worship and, and uh, sacrifice of praise. And then he is really pleased as we open his book and examine our hearts and lives in light of Scripture. What we're doing is really, in one sense, the height of worship. Because I know there are things, I'm so thankful for positional purity of heart, Blessed are the pure in heart. They will see God. If you're here this morning and you have had your conscience washed, your sins forgiven, then you have positional purity before God. And you will see God one day. And you will not be rejected by him. But what we want is not simply positional purity. We want greater practical purity. I go down to my pond, and I scoop out a glass of water, and I look at it. You can't quite see all the way through it. That's my heart, if I could see it before God. It's a continual process. It doesn't happen overnight. There is continual washing and, and cleansing and repenting of sin and growing in truth of grace, and that is what we seek to do this morning. We are in an exposition of the Gospel of Matthew. We are approaching uh, the midpoint of chapter 12. And I'm going to jump down, first of all, to chapter 15 and start there because this is really what the issue is about as we see rising opposition in the Gospel of Matthew, it is tradition, it is man's thoughts that get elevated and trump Scripture. Lord God, we look to heaven above. You're the true teacher. Be merciful to us. Be gracious to us. You're a God of mercy and grace. You've given us a throne of grace. You've given us a book of grace. And we're thankful when we call out to you for mercy and grace with a sincere heart. You know how to give good gifts to your children. We pray for everyone present this morning. Some have never come to a genuine saving faith of Jesus Christ. We know children come into this world and they do not come in with genuine saving faith. So we pray for parents to teach them the Word of God, to model it, and then may you do what only you can do and bring true regeneration, cause the light of the knowledge of Jesus Christ to shine in their hearts. And then we've, we've rubbed elbows with the world this week. And we get a bit dusty. So, Lord, in your mercy and your grace, make the scriptures to shine in our hearts and in our lives. Keep us from being merely hearers of the word of God. Make us doers. We pray in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. Keep your finger in Matthew chapter 12, and please turn to Matthew chapter 15. I'm going to fast forward a little bit, and then we'll go back to chapter, chapter 12. We're seeing a confrontation of our Lord particularly with the Pharisees and the scribes. The Pharisees were the one with a very strict 
interpretation and understanding of the Old Testament. They were much better in believing the Old Testament than the Sadducees did. The Sadducees were a bit loose with Scripture. But what had happened was the Pharisees had become so fastidious about what it means, the Scripture, and they would hold two things. They would say that there is what we would call this, the Bible. Now, they only have what is called Tanakh, Torah, Nevi'im, Kedovim, the law, the writings, the scriptures, what we call the Hebrew scriptures. But they would say, yes, we have that. That's the written law of Moses. But there is also an oral law of Moses that they would claim was given at Sinai, was passed down orally by mouth, generation to generation to generation. And then finally, it was written down. It is what called the Mishnah. And for them, this is equally as authoritative as Scripture. Now here's what always happens when you make our thoughts equal to Scripture. Our thoughts are going to trump Scripture. And that gets us into deep difficulty in honoring and obeying God. So we're going to pick up here in the Pharisees and the scribes in Matthew 15. I got up early this morning. I was doing my reading, and, and it jarred me because I was reminded I was in Philippians. <laughs> Paul said, I was a Pharisee of Pharisees. So when we read this, we ought to remember that God even calls Pharisees to himself. And if you're not a Pharisee, in a religious leader sense, Jewish, many of us have been Pharisees in our hearts. So I pick up in Matthew chapter 15, then Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem. Oh, you, you have Pharisees that would run the local synagogues. You would have a, a synagogue ruler. We, we looked at one Jairus by name, remember his little daughter, 12-year-old daughter, she was about to die, and he came up and he worshipped Jesus. So not, not everyone in a synagogue would be, but by and large, the tradition has so encrusted Scripture. And now, they're not local synagogues with Pharisees, they're coming all the way down from, up from Jerusalem. Now, if you, if you drew up the way the bur, uh, crow flies, you probably could do it in about uh, 50 miles but remember, if those of you who have been to the land, you're, <laughs> you're going up and down. This isn't a straight shot. It's a tedious, a tedious walk. So this has caught their attention so much that they're coming all the way up to pay attention and to confront Jesus. What are you doing saying our traditions aren't valid? So they came from Jerusalem. And, and they, right away, why do your disciples break, don't obey, don't follow, the tradition of the elders? That's this stuff right here. I mean, it's it just rule, alignment. Not, not every safeguard is evil. In other words, I have safeguards in my life, things that I don't do. Um, I, I know... The sin that so easily besets me, I've had probably different patterns of sin in my life than you have, so I have safeguards. I, I don't go certain places, I don't do certain things. Um, um, I'm, I'm trying to guard my heart, but if I raise those to the level of Scripture, I'm going to do the same thing that is here. So they have the tradition of the elders, and there are some of them, you know, you don't wash all those ceremonial things that they do. And Jesus counters that with the same very word where ESV translates break the tradition. He counters them. All right, but why do you break, annul, don't obey, don't believe the commandment of God? Do you see what's set here in sharp contrast? The tradition of the elders and the commandment 
of God. These are not suggestions. We have a moral obligation to believe and obey God. Everybody does. All of creation has this obligation. And he says, that's what you're breaking, and you're doing it in verse 3 for the sake of your tradition. You break Scripture because you elevate your tradition as more important than Scripture. I still will look at one passage where the disciples will go, the Pharisees were offended by what you said. I suspect they were. And he gives an example. God commanded, honor your father and your mother, the fifth commandment. And they're saying, well, but you, you can annul it. You got little loopholes here. And we come down to verse 6. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. Here it is again. Tradition of the elders, the commandment of God. Tradition, the word of God. The word of God is always supreme. It's always supreme. Have your conscience bound to Scripture. Bring your Bibles with you. I'm thankful you do. Examine everything I say. I am not infallible. Look at it from your Bible, from Scripture. Read your Scriptures during the week. Don't let dust accumulate them. If you only pick up your Bible and bring it to church on Sunday, now, I, I, I know, I'm a dinosaur. We go to Israel, and we're, I'm, I'm carrying around my Bible, and we're reading out there, and some guys are pulling out their cell phone. And the guide looked at us, kind of smiled, and he goes, I can tell how old you are by whether you carry around a Bible or you read it from your cell phone. Just read it. I don't care if you read it from your cell phone. Read it. Read the Scriptures. You cannot grow in grace without reading the Scriptures. And you were, you're not going to know what's the tradition of man and what is the Word of God unless you read your Bibles. But here's the issue. Look at verse 7. You hypocrites. A hypocrite is a person who says one thing, <laughs> but they don't do it. Now, we all have a de probably degree of hypocrisy in our lives. God is continuing to refine us and change us. But this, this is such blatant hypocrisy about how to have a right relationship with God. The problem is the heart. Look what Jesus does. He quotes from Isaiah. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Now, we have done this probably a few thousand times, and I've asked you, what is the heart? And some of you smile. So your heart is your mind, will, emotion, and you can throw in con conscience if you want to. So it works this way. You want to know what your heart is like? What are you thinking about? You want to know what your heart is like? Why are you here this morning? What is your motive for being here? What is your motive for doing anything? That's part of your heart. And then how does that affect your actions? Do you simply give lip service to something, but it, it, it doesn't follow through? You're not a doer of the word. Jesus nailed them right here. He said, you're just like them. And I, those were in Isaiah's day. And then verse 12, the disciples came and said, do you know the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying, if this offends you this morning, take it, be a wise person. Be a wise person. Let it step on your toes. I have to do the same. Let it step on my toes. And then Jesus gives probably the most clear explanation of the problem of the heart right here in verse 19. It's not the food you put in your body that defiles you. Out of the heart, verse 19, come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slanders, 
These, and that's only a small sample, these are what defile a person. So that the, this, these are the key religious leaders coming up from Jerusalem, and they're going to nail Jesus, and instead they got nailed in terms of the problem of the heart. Now, turn back to chapter, to chapter 12, because this is really the issue that we have been looking at and will see constantly throughout Matthew and ask yourself, what's your tradition? What, what do you believe? Uh, do your thoughts trump Scripture? You don't have to have the tradition of the elders. You can have your own tradition by saying, eh, I think this is true and that's true, but what does the Bible have to say? What does the Word of God have to say? Are you going to spend an eternity with him or without him? We got one shot at this life, and it'll be over. You don't know when. I don't know when he's going to return. He could return. So this is so vital to know and understand what God's word has to say and examine my heart and my mind and my thoughts. Are they in line with Scripture? This is controversy number two. We looked at, as Dr. Church pointed out, last week we looked at the issue of Shabbat, the Sabbath, and they had a ton of rules about it. And we looked at one, the disciples were on the Sabbath, and they had rules about how far you could walk, maybe three football fields. You go any further than that on the Sabbath, and you're working. And they're, they're just going through the grain fields, and they were hungry. And we saw pictures, you're, they're plucking when the ripe grain, and this is permitted in the Scriptures, in Deuteronomy, it's okay to do that. Now, you're not allowed to go in with your sickle and start, you know, <laughs> taking half of his grain field along, but if you're hungry and you're walking along, and they didn't think that was okay. They called that reaping. We're talking about the weekly Sabbath, not festivals like the Day of Atonement. That did not fall on the seventh day, if you go back and look at it. But we're looking at the seventh day, the day of rest, which reflects the way the Creator created this universe. So, why all those details? I like that, Trevor. You asked why all those details. It should remind us this is the way God did it. And we can believe it, or we can say, no, no, the science, uh, so-called science has disproven that. No, it hasn't. So Israel was to work six days and rest the seventh. That's the day of rest. That's Shabbat. That's Sabbath. And by doing so, they were to remind themselves this is the way God brought the universe. It, it wasn't some other pagan deity that have all, all every nation. No, you know the true God above. And by your way of work, under the Mosaic law, you're to reflect that, the fourth commandment. So how did Jesus answer them? <laughs> Have you not read? Have you not read? Oh, that stepped on their toes because they had read it, but they had not properly understood it. And he capped off his argument in verse 8 with this, as well as in verse 7, referring back, uh, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Your hearts aren't right. But he says, the Son of Man is Lord. He's master of the Sabbath in another place. Look, the Sabbath was, man was not created for the Sabbath. In other words, the Sabbath isn't there and has all these rules, and then he creates man to conform to the Sabbath. No, the Sabbath was created for man. It was to be a gift from him. It was to give him a day of rest. 
And the Son of Man, the common way we have seen Jesus referring to himself thus far through the Gospel of Matthew, he's kurios, he's Lord, he's master of the Sabbath. And so he's always going to give us the right interpretation, the understanding. And he's telling them, throw all that crusty stuff away that you traditions have obscured the Word of God. So we're going to leave the grain fields and we're going to come down in verse 9 to another Sabbath in the synagogue. And Luke, uh, by comparing all of this, is uh, this particular incident is recorded in uh, Mark and Luke as well as Matthew. I may not always have us flip over there, so if you're wondering, well, that's, that's not in this account. Well, just check out the other ones, and it'll be in there. So Luke makes it clear that this is a different Sabbath, and he goes in there, and he enters their synagogue. Have you ever thought what it, what it was like for Jesus um, growing up? Where'd he grow up at? What city? Nazareth. Nazareth. Remember later on he went to the synagogue at Nazareth and they go, they saw his claims and they go, how can this, this be the Messiah? We, we know his brothers named several of them. And I finally got it right. Jesus was the older brother but as some of you remember making that silly comment one time, not even realizing what I made. But yes, and he had sisters. He had sisters as well. So here would be a typical Sabbath day, um, just like uh, some of you with, with families. You, you get your children together, some older, some younger, and you will come to uh, the synagogue, and they would have... Uh, a place up there for, they would bring out Torah, because you don't have a copy of it. That's how you learn it. You have to memorize it. So they bring out a copy of Torah, and they, they would read from it. And so Jewish men could, at times, had the privilege of standing and making comments or teaching about the scriptures that were read. And that was, that was Jesus' common practice. He, we saw back in uh, the beginning of Matthew, chapter 4, he would go into the synagogues. And when the scripture was read, he would, he would start to teach from them. And you remember what he taught? <laughs> Repent and believe in the gospel, and the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then he would flesh that out from the scriptures that were there. So he went in on the Sabbath, and also I think it's Mark makes the point that he was teaching. So the scriptures were read, he stands, he's teaching from the scriptures, and, you know, children of different age, they're, they're you know, I don't, I don't know how the parents kept them attentive. You know, when our grandchildren come, we might give them... Um, a piece of paper and a, and a pen or, or something there, and afterwards, some of you, I, I appreciate that. You have small children, you'll bring it up to me, and on the way out the door, they'll hand me one, and it's a picture of me with my hand up like this trying to preach. And uh, you're not artists, but I, I appreciate that. At least you paid some attention. And so he's there, he's there teaching, and we read, a man was there with a withered hand. Now, if you look at the full account in all of them, I take it that those who suspect this guy was a plant. In other words, it's not an accident that he's there. Because what the Pharisees are doing, they're watching to see what he is going to do. And the big question is, is it okay for healing to take place on the Sabbath. Now, if I were to read from the Mishnah, um, they had all kinds. Well, here's what you could do and not do on the Sabbath.
This is from Mishnah Shabbat. It says, Only in the case of mortal illness was healing permitted on the Sabbath. If you broke your arm and you dislocated your arm, wait till the next day. <laughs> Maybe you could pour some cold water over it, you know, to kind of ease, ease the pain, but you don't do that on the, your life. It has to be mortal danger and life is being threatened and then you can do something about it. Here's uh, another passage from the Mishnah. If a man has a pain in his throat, they may drop medicine in his throat on the Sabbath because there may be some doubt whether his life is in danger. Um, but if you suspect his life's in danger, tell him open his mouth, drop, 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 drop. Um, they may anoint or rub a stomach, it assumes with olive oil for healing, but they not, may not use emetics, some kind of means to induce vomiting. They may not straighten a deformed child's body or set a broken limb. If a man's hand or foot is dislocated, he may co pour cold water over it. So these are, these are here, here we have it right here. Tradition of the elders, word of God. Tradition of the elders, the commandment of God. So here's this guy sitting in there, and he, he came in, and I would take it that uh, synagogues were, were pretty full. This was an, if, you were, if you were a Jew in the first century, you went to synagogue. If you didn't, you, you would be anathema. And the Pharisees had charge over who could remember. Remember John chapter 9? Remember why the blind, you know, he went to his parents. Was this guy really blind from birth? And remember what they said? Well, you ask him, he's, if he's of age, he can answer for it. Why didn't they answer? Because they're afraid they're going to throw him out of the synagogues. So the Pharisees had charge over this. So you got this man, and he has a withered hand. Now, at least in Texas, you're pretty familiar with Xeriscape. And uh, you, you, a minimum of water, um, you try and landscape the front. Xeriscape comes from this same, this same adjective, xeros. So it says, his hand was certainly paralyzed, and it was shrunken, and it was withered. Later tradition says he uh, was a stonemason. If, if that's true, and I don't know that it was true, but if it was true... Um, he probably didn't become a stonemason. Something happened to his hand afterwards. But maybe it was congenital. We don't know for sure. I read this, and who do you think I thought about? Louise is, is nodding her head, her husband. Mr. Tom Lively, what a servant. Tom Lively did more with one hand than a lot of people do with two hands. I never went to Tom and asked him to do something that he said no. Now, I didn't ask him to do outrageous kind of things, but he, he purchased the supplies. He brings them in and would pick them up, and I'd go out to help. I'll, I'll get it. Go back to your study, Pastor. I'll get it. He's picking it up like this. So this man has some type of deformity in his hand. It doesn't work right. It says, it's described, it's withered. It is dried up. It is shriveled. And if you saw Tom Lively, you would know not only his hand, but his arm there. And they're asking the question, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Why? They want to accuse him. They want to condemn him. That particular word, to accuse, means they want to take him into court. They want to take him before the Sanhedrin because what was the, what was the penalty for violating the Sabbath under the, the Mosaic law? Yeah, it's the death penalty. Take him out and stone him. Remember the guy in Numbers that was picking up sticks? They stoned him according to the commandment of God. 
So they're there not concerned about the guy with the withered hand. They want their agenda done. They're not there to listen to the teaching of Scripture. They're there for one purpose. We want this guy, and he is getting too popular. He is contrary to our traditions. He says they're not valid. He keeps quoting, have you not read? Have you not read? You're, you, you are wrong. You err. You don't know the Scriptures or the power of God. So he asked them a question. Now, flip over to Mark chapter 3 and we'll come back here because this, this is... Uh, Interesting. That, that's why it's so helpful to read all three of the synoptic Gospels. They complement one another. They complete one another. They do not contradict one another. And they will have different, different details in here. So I go over to Mark chapter 3. And it says, uh, again, he entered the synagogue. Man was there with a withered hand. They watched Jesus. That word watch is, is a word that they're looking at him very intently. Can we get him? Can we get him? Can we catch him? Is he going to heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him? And here, so Jesus says to the man with the withered hand, come here, come here. <laughs> Nothing like getting pointed out in the middle of the service while he's teaching. And... Uh, he knew their thoughts. He knew what they were trying to do. So he says, come here, come here. So now the man evidently comes down. Jesus would be teaching in the front of the synagogue, and he walks down, and now everybody sees if they didn't know the man with the withered hand. They, they know it now. And he asked them a question. Is it lawful, is it permitted not in your tradition, but is it permitted before God to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath, to save life or to kill it? Now flip back to Matthew. So there's another question that goes, that goes there with that. It's a, and they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? And he's going to counter it this time with giving them an example that even the Pharisees would do this. And he says this, and it's, a, it's a, just the practice of the way they live their lives. Which one of you has a sheep, if it falls into a pit, some, some type of opening hole on the Sabbath, will he not take hold of it and lift it out? And they're all thinking, uh-oh. <laughs> of course they would. Then he says, of how much more value is a man than a sheep? Jesus is con constantly doing this, going to the animal world. Remember when in the Sermon on the Mount we worry what's going to happen tomorrow? And he says, uh, aren't you out there looking at the lilies of the field? If God takes care of them and the sparrows, not one falls to the ground without my heavenly Father noticing it, taking care of it, didn't happen by accident, how much value are you more than many sparrows? And he gives them that burning little rebuke. Oligopistos, little faith, little faith. Just look out there and trust them. And so he gives another example. In other words, imago dei. Thank you, Trevor. It was so good this morning. We are unique among all of God's creation. Not the angelic world, not anything in the animal world is created in the image of God. And you cannot eradicate it. Now something happened to that image at the fall. 
It didn't get erased. It didn't get obliterated. It got marred. Instead of being a good representation of God, now we become poor representations of God. Hitler was still Imago Dei. He's a very poor representation of the image of God. And so what Jesus is doing here for him is said, look, if something on the lower isn't even in the image of God, and by the way, a righteous man is kind to his animals, a cruel man is not. So it's not saying, so it's right to pull one out. And he says, if you're, if you're willing to do that, and there's this guy with the withered hand, and you're looking at me to condemn me because you're afraid I might do something on the Sabbath that's going to violate your traditions. So he says to the man, now he's standing there, <laughs> must have had his hand down at his side. He says, stretch out your hand. Just stretch it out. I'll guarantee the tension in there was, was intense. And he stretched it out, and when he stretched it out, in the process of stretching it out, it says now his hand was immediately healthy. It was sound. It was just like the other one, perfectly normal in the process. And sometimes Jesus would touch the eyes. People wanted to touch him, etc. He didn't touch anything. He just said, spoke. He didn't even say be healed. He just said, touch, stretch out your hand. And then the process of stretching out his hand, it became whole and healthy. Now, if you wonder why I'm a little skeptical of faith healers today, particularly on television, I don't see them having this ability to do this. Just go through all the miracles in Acts and ask this question, does what they are doing match Scripture? You know what? And, and also, when the Pharisees came to him, you know what? They, we don't know if you can heal or not. No, they knew he could heal. They couldn't deny his miracles. They'd already seen it. The only thing that they could do was their tradition trumps Scripture. And you want to get an answer to the question? <laughs> this could not be more clear. Look at verse 12. So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. There it is. He not only did it, but he made the clear declaration. It's good to do good on the Sabbath. And the man's hand was healthy. It was restored. And so what did, what did how, how did they answer? The Pharisees went out and conspired against him. In other words, uh, Mark says they were silent. He asked them, and, and they were silent. They, they couldn't answer. That is, a, They knew they were wrong, and they didn't care. What they wanted to do was do away with Jesus. There's nothing. What's the, what was the issue we looked at in Matthew chapter 15? It's the heart. It's the heart. And Luke, it says, he looked around at them with anger and also with sorrow angry at the hardness of their heart and sorrow over their refusal to look at the scriptures and believe them. Because what he's doing, it's pointing to him. Remember what John the Baptist, he's in prison. He's getting a little confused. He hears about all the healings. Well, when's, when's, <laughs> when's he going to crush his enemies, Psalm 2, and rule with a rod of iron? I've been pronouncing judgment when it's going to fall. John's disciples, go back to John and tell him this. The blind see, the lame walk, the deaf hear, demons are cast out, leopards are cleansed. And what that's going to do for John is go back to the scriptures. But what did they do? No hardened hearts. It, interesting, Luke says they went out and co they conspired with the Herodians. Pharisees and Herodians? This would be like, well, I'll just go ahead and blurt it out. This would be like 
the most far-left Democrats agreeing with the most right of the Tea Party. You go, that's not going to happen. Well, that's why this is so strange. You, the little saying, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Herodians did not agree with the Pharisees in theology by, all, by any means, and they didn't agree with the objective. They both want to get rid of Jesus. Herodians. You know who they supported? Herod the Great. What did he do? He murdered all the infants two years and under. Who was one of his sons? Herod Antipas. What did Herod Antipas do? Well, he illegally married, divorced his wife and married his brother's uh, wife. And then when she got angry and had that big party of Machiris on the other side, and then he had John the Baptist's head taken off and brought it back in on a platter. Those are the Herodians. And, and they're plotting to hatred, just hatred. Now, I'm running out of time. This is a wonderful passage. This is the longest quote of any Hebrew text in Matthew. Uh, what does Jesus do? He withdrew from there. Many followed him. He healed them all, not just a few, all that came to him. He didn't say, well, if you got enough faith, no, he healed them all, and he ordered them not to make him known. Why not to make him known? Well, they had some false expectations. Remember in John, that's one of the clearest examples. They were coming by force after they saw what he had done to make him king. And he says, no, no. The Son of Man, he has come to give his life as a ransom on behalf of many. Oh, he will one day return and rule with a rod of iron. Be sure of that. But how gracious is this? And so now Matthew wants to show exactly what has just taken place as the fulfillment of Scripture. So turn over to Matthew to Isaiah chapter 42. Now, This is one of the servant passages. If you look at verse 19, Israel is, is also called the servant to the Lord. Israel as a nation is supposed to be the means of showing who God is by declaring him living in a holy, godly way. So when we come down to verse 19, Hear you deaf, look you blind, that you may see. Who is blind but my servant? Well, this, this is Israel. This isn't the Messiah. Who is as blind as my dedicated one or blind as the servant of the Lord? He sees many things, but he doesn't observe them. His ears are open. He doesn't hear. But when you come to verse 42, 1, this is a different servant. And Matthew knows, boy, can you imagine how maybe 20 years after the death of Christ, how Matthew must have saturated his mind with the Scriptures to be able to go to passages like this and know them. So Isaiah is writing, the prince of Old Testament prophets, Behold, pay attention to this. Stop, look, and listen. This is my servant. Yahweh is speaking. This is my servant whom I uphold. I support him. And when God is supporting him, he need, he, that's all the support he needs. He's my chosen one, and in whom my soul delights. This, this we've also seen back at the baptism when he was preparing to enter ministry, and John didn't want a baptism. No, you need to do this, John. It's to fulfill all righteousness. I put my spirit upon him, it's going to be spirit-empowered ministry. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Look at verse 3. Again, he will faithfully bring forth justice. Verse 4, he's not going to grow faint or be discouraged. How could he? He has, he has the Lord's support till he established justice in the earth. So... One of the key 
points that Matthew is going to make of his text. He, and, and sometimes you'll look and you'll go, hey, how come, how come he didn't quote it exactly? <laughs> well, sometimes they're bringing the essence of the passage out. And so this will be uh, Matthew understands the passage and he's driving the intent of it. But here it is. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. Now go back to Matthew chapter 12. So Matthew is going to say, what Jesus is doing is exactly in fulfillment of the Scriptures. So he starts out the same way. You better pay attention to this person. He's my servant, says the Lord, whom I have chosen. He's my beloved. My soul is well pleased in him. The Messiah never did a single thing. He was the only one that could say, I always honor my father. I'll put my spirit upon him. He'll proclaim justice to the Gentiles. Now, he will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. Well, if he's going to proclaim justice, it doesn't mean they don't hear him speaking. It means he's not a demagogue. You look at some of the people, the Bar Kokhba revolt that happened later on, and people rose up and called themselves Jesus and come follow me, and, and they're going to revolt against Rome and overthrow it, and, and w what happened? Well, you know what happened in A.D. 70. Jesus was no proponent of that kind of person. What's he doing? He's out proclaiming, repent and believe in the gospel. And then, here's his character. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench. Any of you have, have, have oil lamps with those, with those wicks? Some of you do kind of souvenirs, or, or um, we, we have a few of them. And you know the wick that goes down in the oil. So when it starts to burn, burn up, and it's just smoldering anymore, and you don't want the smoke, the the fire's not. So so you just you just extinguish it. One says, these this double metaphor tells us about the compassion of God. Wow. Look at it. The image of a bruised reed, as one writes, requires a little explanation. Reeds grew by the millions in marshes and by river banks, so they had little value. A whole reed could be cut and shaped to serve as a measure, a flute, or a pen, but a bruised reed was worthless. If a, if a perfect reed is fragile and a bruised one is useless, why will Jesus not break a bruised reed? You know why? Because he's gentle. You know who the bruised reeds are? That's us. That's us. And part of it is to recognize that we are bruised reeds. Go, go, go back to here the, in chapter 11. Woe to you, Corzine. Woe to you, Bethsaida. If the miracles and Capernaum, if the miracles had been done in you, Tyre, Sidon, Sodom and Gomorrah would have repented long ago. What great responsibility we have for exposure to truth. And then he comes out with this. Dr. Church is going to preach in a couple weeks on, I think, the parallel passage to this is in Isaiah 55. Verse 28. And some are going to come. You know why some are going to come? Because it's guaranteed. The Son is going to reveal some about Himself and about the Father. So come to me, what kind of people? The proud, the arrogant, the self-righteous, the think they don't need, that they don't have any problems, they don't have sin, they're not broken reeds. No, no. Come to me, all who are in the process of laboring. You're laboring under your sin. You're trying to strive to be pleasing to God, and especially that heavy yoke that the Pharisees are laying upon you, tradition versus Scripture. You come to me, 
and I'll give you rest from all that stuff. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That's why Matthew quotes that from Isaiah 42. And I see, I did it again. I, I didn't keep up with the PowerPoints. Um, so here we go, fastly through them. I want to get down to uh, the conclusion anyway. Um, does your tradition trump the Word of God? Do the thoughts that you have about God, do they line up with Scripture? The heart is the heart of the problem before God. And we all, by nature, have a heart that is deceitful and desperately wicked. My heart, by nature, tells me things that aren't true, and I believe it. And you know what I need? I need the book. I need God's revelation to come along and say, no, that's not right. This is right. Do you have hardness of heart? You see these miracles, you just, ah, no, that could never have taken place. Look, this is God's word. Hear the crucial words of Jesus. Woe to the proud, the unrepentant who refuse to come, but it's rest for the humble, the weary, the heavy laden who come. You come to him. You take his words upon you. He'll give you rest. He'll give you rest. He'll give you eternal rest. And know the heart of the Savior. It's gentle and lowly. Oh, not to the proud and the arrogant. It's going to be judgment, terrible judgment. But you come to him, you won't find a more gentle person and more lowly than the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed are the pure in heart. They alone will see God. I can't see him yet, not at least visibly. I see him through the eye of faith. I see him as he has revealed himself in Scripture. But one day, we are going to see God. If you're here and you never have trusted Jesus Christ, I can't urge you any more strongly. Turn from your sin. Humble yourselves. Remove your pride. Bring yourself, not tradition, but Scripture. Not the commandments of men, but the Word of God, the commandment of God, the God who says, repent and believe in Him. And if you will do that, He will forgive your sin and He will show Himself strong on your behalf through the difficulties of life. And if you have done that, thank God for positional purity that He's given you a clean heart and long for greater practical purity, hunger and thirst after righteousness. In conclusion, I hope you'll, you'll sing with a pure heart, Rock of Ages, cleft for me.